with Robin Petter. How are you, Robin? Good, thank you, John. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for coming on. And um, I think you're our southernmost contributor. We've had people in Australia before, but never actually in Tasmania. So welcome to us from Hobart. Sometimes I nickname it the Deep South because there's not many spots in Australia that you can go south, further south. There is actually a couple of cities in New Zealand and South um, America that are further south. But... but they're a different country, I understand. Yeah, I'm told. I'm told New Zealand is not the same country as Australia. And quite culturally different as well. <laughs> no, I, yeah. I've never been to either actually, so I'm looking forward to an invitation at some point. Yeah, okay. Yep. I will take that as a formal invitation and will um, <laughs> send you my details. But um, the the reason we're having this conversation, Robin, is you wrote a really interesting article for the Sprout Labs website, and that was around learning ecosystems. And for a while I've been in the consultancy work I've done, I've been talking a lot about learning organizations and trying to really challenge them on not thinking much beyond training courses, thinking even beyond the kind of 70-20-10 approach to be really thinking about, yeah, that's all very well, that's great activity, but what happens when it's transferred back to the workplace? Unless that's ready to kind of receive uh, new performance, new ideas, etc., then all of that brilliant activity is kind of a bit of a waste of time. And I think what I found really interesting about your approach was partly around the use of the word ecosystem. I thought it was a really nice word and it kind of made it feel fresh to me as an idea. So that was the kind of initial hook that really made me kind of want to talk to you. Cool. Thank you. I mean, it's the, the use of the word learning and e- learning ecosystems not particularly new, um, that the Elon Guild in, in the US have been using the term learning ecosystem for a little while, but I think they've been really talking about technology ecosystems. So essentially what, what we've started to talk about is more learning ecosystems. And like you said, we've been looking for a way of explaining working beyond courses that really sort of starts to talk about culture and talk about all, all the other things you need to do around a learning experience to make it really happen and ecosystem really sort of sat with me at a personal level as well for what that could actually entail the holistic thing well yeah i mean you're right it's a word often used in it but of course it comes from a more naturalistic science when we talk about a kind of an environmental ecosystem and i think that's the metaphor that i like because it's you know you can have the best seeds in the world and you could be a fantastic farmer or gardener or whatever but if you plant them in soil that doesn't, that isn't properly irrigated or fertilized, whatever it is, I'm not a gardener, as you can tell. Um, but if you plant that in rocky soil or whatever and don't water it, then it's not going to grow. It doesn't matter how good that seed is. And I think that's the bit of the metaphor that I quite like, that I think helps me transmit the idea that all I'm doing is providing the seeds here, but actually the the culture itself, the organisation needs to create the environment, needs to do the watering, fertilising, etc. Yeah. Whatever and, else farmers do. And it was interesting because it um, clicked for me, actually, when my wife, who has a real strong interest in um, permaculture and organic culture, um, organic gardening, was dragged me along to a talk when someone was talking about designing um, ecosystems and food forests. And I went, oh, all, all this sort of thinking through of how plants relate to each other. And they were very much about how you, how to make plants relate to each other to minimize maintenance and maximize output. 
and sat there and went, well, in actual fact, that's in some ways when you're designing a 70-20-10 learning model or a blended learning model, that's the same sort of thinking through. I was thinking, well, how do these components fit together? What's going to go wrong with these and how do they sort of balance out to make something bigger than what you actually started out with as well? Let's let's just drill down a couple of points that you made there and then we'll go into how you're going to structure this because we've talked first of all about ecosystems and we've both mentioned 70-20-10. So do you want to just first of all give your definition of what you mean by an ecosystem? Oh, interesting. So um, my working definition is a series of components that work together in a holistic way. Right, okay. So these moving parts interact with each other, depend on each other, presumably form some kind of um, perpetual motion type yeah. Mach- yeah. machine. <laughs> I'm stretching the metaphor a little bit. Here. <laughs> um, a challenging vocabulary for a Monday morning as well. Um, it's also interesting because I'm not. Um, I'm just cautious about overpromising. Um, sometimes when I've actually started to hear people talk about the fact that the, an ecosystem is more than the sum of its parts, um, it has the idea that it's really nicely set up. It can evolve by itself. Um, I suppose I'm. Optimistic, but not um, idealistic is the best way to put it. I think that's a really, really strong point. And I I actually think that's probably the key point of this podcast, actually. Because the idea, the, the way we talk about setting up learning organizations, you can go back to Peter Senge and loads of other writers on, on learning organizations, Chris Ajiris and all those people, learning ecosystems, they all kind of suggest these bits that you put in place. And you're right. On their own, they will obviously make a positive difference, but it's not, here's your magic key. Now it works perfectly. There is a, I think there is a role in a sense for a kind of, perhaps it's the chief learning officer's role, but the ecosystem maintenance person, which is what you would get in your horticultural example. You would have somebody who is in charge of managing that environment. Yeah. And the gardener metaphor is a really nice one for sort of um, coaches and facilitators at the, grassroots level of how 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 to get things to grow and be supported as well and possibly also be in that more facilitator role rather than trainer role as well yeah the gardener thing i mean that's that's always quite a nice metaphor isn't it as you say let's um before we sort of get completely submersed in clever metaphors around gardening let's let's um just 70 20 10 we both mentioned it do you want to just quickly say what your understanding of that is just yep. in case anybody listening isn't fully aware. Cool. So I'm not going to quote the exact um, researchers, but it came out of a fairly small set of research in the um, 90s. It's become really heavily adopted, especially in Australia. The idea of the 70-20-10 learning model is that 10% of what we've learned is informal learning. Um, 20% is from our peers and most likely also our direct line managers. And then 70% is learned through on-the-job experience and experience and, sh- and sharing. For me, it's sort of interesting. You notice I try to use it, and I quite often use the word model because it's not so much a, a framework. Um, it's a very really good way of explaining, actually, that learning needs to be experiential and social um, and that a lot of formal learning doesn't work. But beyond that, it needs more sort of bones to it. But at the same time, what I also really like about it is it can be many different things and it can be used in many different ways. So it just gives a flexibility of thinking that encourages people to work beyond just assigning a course of some sort. 
so you see this seventy twenty ten essentially as a a framework for describing blended learning, but also in in a way that encourages that social experiential side of learning and diminishes the role of training courses. Uh, that's kind of how I that's kind of how I see it. Yeah, is it actually interesting? Because I, in some situations, it can dis- d- diminish the role of training courses, but at other times, it can be used as a way to expand the role of training courses. It's also a way of thinking about building a set of things of continuous learning, and also sitting there going, well, if this is something that's sort of knowledge that's in the organisation. It's a practice that people do day to day. Possibly the most powerful way of actually getting someone upskilled into that area is actually through some sort of mirroring or on the job, a job rotation or sharing or shadowing rather than an actual formal training course as well. So it's not so much about this mission, it's about sort of expanding is the way I think about it. Yeah, okay. I think that's probably a fair challenge. I think what I was, what I meant was rather than training courses dominating the concept of learning and development, that this is this is learning and development, nothing else is. Everything else is just doing your job or learning from your manager or whatever. That's what I meant, saying that actually there's a lot more things that that come under the umbrella of learning and development. But I think the point you're making is good because you're sort of saying that actually you're making the actual formal workshop training course part more effective by making it more targeted and part of a bigger program. Yes. Rather than an isolated event. Yeah, and... Also, one of the really nice things about what you're sort of talking about is I've heard many a learning and development person walk into a senior manager's office and say, hey, there's this bit of research called the 70-20-10, and it shows that the 70 is the most effective part. We're only doing the 10. We need to expand our activity and expand our role. Um, will you support me to do this? And the answer is normally straightforward, yes. <laughs> Um, because essentially there's normally a frustration that the 10 formal doesn't work. Um, and I think that could work really nice as a value proposition for 70-20-10 in organisations. Yeah, I think you're right. I think you have to find your way of telling that story. Um, but you're right. I think it's the, the more that we can professionally pro- show, here's some research, here's, here's how you make these things work. We all have experience of training workshops that are varying degrees of effectiveness, even the really good ones. You know, I've delivered brilliant workshops. I've come out thinking, wow, that was really good. People have come out with great confidence, uh, great feedback. year later, I go back and say, oh, what do you remember from that course? And they go, oh, yeah, what was that again? They can barely remember the title. Yeah. Never mind the content. <laughs> and you think, and I'm looking at their performance and I'm thinking, well, nothing's changed. And that wasn't to do with the fact that the course itself was not good. It was to do with the fact the course itself was isolated. And it wasn't linked to their real life or their manager or whatever it is it wasn't linked to a bigger program of stuff and therefore it wasn't enough to change habits it wasn't enough to make people get outside their comfort zone take risks and try new stuff i've learned since then as i'm talking about a while ago now just just to be clear yeah and and it I put it it does take a while and it's not always easy i'm finding myself spending more time talking to training providers who are actually in that spot where they know that what they're doing is not always effective, but they want to, and they do want to use these more expanded approaches. But it's not always easy, and it quite often costs more, uh, more complicated to implement, and it sort of does have a series of barriers as well. Yeah, it can be harder to sell as well if people are phoning up saying, "I want a training course 
it's sometimes quite hard to challenge back. You don't want to lose business. Yeah, and then if some, someone sits there and says, yeah, I'll, I'll do a training course, but we won't do a training course unless you have follow-up coaching, and that's going to cost double the amount yeah. of money. Yeah, it puts everyone in a difficult spot. Yeah, absolutely. Listen, let's let's move on to this ecosystem that, that we're initially talking about. What structure are you going to use for the this discussion? Cool. So what I've ended up with, John, is a sort of working um, idea that ecosystems are made up of four things, sort of guides for learning by working, making sure that there's spaces for practicing new skills, learning from others, and then having a good, solid knowledge base as well and um i was thinking we'd just talk through each one of each one of those areas a little bit more and what i what i mean when i sort of say those sort of fairly vague terms okay all right well you have to tell me again what was the first one? First one was guides for learning by working so um guides for I'm, learning by working great okay so when I, I i sort of i'm looking forward to this one sorry to interrupt you i'm really looking forward to this one because i think this is another really key point because when we talk about 70% of your learning is from experience and just learning from working, there's, but there's a lot more to it. You have to know how to do that. There's, there has to be, it's not as simple as just doing stuff and therefore assuming you're going to learn effectively. So I'm really, I, I think this is a really good point. Sorry, go on. Yeah, cool. And I mean, it, 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 it's actually, um, it's a huge topic. Sorry, it just actually triggered a whole lot of other thinking. Because essentially, even what we mean, and when I mean talk about the guides um, for learning by working, it starts with actually having some really solid goals. And if people know what good performance looks like, if there's competencies, frameworks in place, and things that they can be measured towards, or having sort of goals that they're working towards, that's the first step in giving them that guide. And I think about it in terms of having an endpoint, and then seeing they're going all well, you might need then stepping stones and pathways through that to actually get there. And that might be, and it really changes depending on each organization and each situation. And I think this is what's really nice about the ecosystem metaphor for me, that those guides in one organization might be literally written documents that sit there and say, do this, do that. Um, in another spot, they might be um, more community of practice style things or We've actually had some success recently with working with trainees coming into an organisation and then writing learning logs as they're starting to do things to increase their sense of reflection of what they're doing. Right, so this is very much around giving people a guide, a way of actually learn, knowing how to learn from experience, but starting with what does good performance look like, something around, as you mentioned, competences, but something articulated in will be different in different organizations how you articulate it but some way of saying this is what good performance looks like yeah um and and if, if they've got that end point it's a whole lot easier for them to then actually know where they need to go go to that and then you can build those scaffolds around how to get there and it's interesting because essentially that sort of abstraction of it to sit there and say okay we're going to actually talk about how you're going to learn while working normally doesn't actually help people much there's actually one really interesting program we've redesigned where and it might seem contradictory to how you first think about things that the learners used to start work and doing real work very early but early in the day you mean oh early in the program so it was sort of like a to, to right. become comp competent it was a sort of 18 months pathway um so within about two weeks they were starting to do some of the really simple tasks but they would then spend and do hundreds and hundreds of those simple tasks in a very repetitive way 
without actually much sort of reflective learning happening. So what we did was actually put more formal learning in earlier so they could start to practice and expand their skills because essentially just doing the work wasn't necessarily meaning that they were learning how to expand their skills. So, so this is the idea of the scaffold. Yeah. As you used it, which I like because I think, again, we're talking about, again, this is one of my frustrations is that this 70% space doesn't mean informal learning is absent of any structure. And in fact, what you're, do- what you're saying is, no, we've got to put a real lot of structure into that 70% space. So it's still very experiential and social, but there is structure there. There's an end point. There's steps along the way. There's activity. There's reflection. There's lots of stuff going on in there, even though it's in the 70% space. Yeah, and the, and it can look very different depending on what the organisation and what the learning problem and learning situation is. But you do need to plan it, design it, think it through. I mean, the other thing that, and this is where the 70-20-10 model can be incredibly flexible, is some of what I'm talking about is actually things that possibly do have competencies, but it can also be used as a model for trying to generate um, innovation and new ways of thinking, and then and continuous learning. So if you then have different types of activity around trying to build that sort of organisational learning as well, and that looks quite different to the stepping through getting to an end point of a competency. So they might be more sort of lessons learnt sessions and, yeah, lessons learnt and critiques and different types of sort of reflective activity. Yeah, it feels, I mean, when you said that, my mind started to think you, you kind of crossing slightly into the kind of change management space because you're potentially impacting on culture and attitude and those kind of you know soft wobbly terms uh, just because of the kind of continuous nature of it the structure of it trying to be more innovative was was the example so so it it, it can be used more broadly as well i think in terms of change programs not just L&D programs although the difference between those two i think is blurred anyway yeah um i mean that in itself is a really big topic um I, I don't it's actually interesting for me because it's particularly an area i don't feel like i'm an expert in but then a lot of people we were talking to around 70 2010 are interested in it as, as driving innovation they are they are org development specialists rather than, than learning specialists which is sort of a different as you say a different sort of area again so that was your first point that was around the creating a guide to learning from experience, the scaffold thing, the structure, having the end point. Where did you go next with that? What was your second point? The second point, and I've actually sort of hinted, hinted a little bit, that people still need spots to be able to um, practice new skills. That We've actually seen spots where people have talked about adopting the 70-20-10 model, and really it's, a, it's about dropping people in to sink and swim. Yeah without any scaffolding. So the uh, my sort of thing is that our formal learning experiences can actually become spots rather than being information dumps like they often are. Um, they could be spots that are highly interactive and places for people to sort of grow their skills and practice new skills. Um, and if they're sort of organised around activities it gives a really different types of type of experience for people so my classic line and i think as a lot of people say it is you never want to be in a passenger in a plane when the pilot's never flown a simulation before that's a very good point (laughs) yeah yeah i definitely support it in the world of aviation um 
but yeah, okay, so a space to practice new skills, and I think, again, the interesting point there is, I suppose, the flipped classroom idea, where you're talking about not using, not wasting what is actually really good social space of the workshop, by having an information dump, was to use your phrase, but knowledge transfer can be done outside the classroom. Knowledge transfer can be done via video, via podcast, via book, writing, loads of different ways you can do webinars, million different ways we can do knowledge transfer. Why do we waste that precious training room space where you've got the social, you've got the opportunity to practice? We shouldn't be wasting that on knowledge transfer. You're absolutely right. It should be skills practice. And this can be such a fantastic experience for everyone to be able to have that time to be able to sit there and with a group of people to be able to to work through things in a really different way. And I heard people talk about the fact that they end up using formal and classroom-based learning experiences to get messaging out because essentially they can't get people off the job at any other time. So that's a different set of stuff as stuff as a problem as well. But I think this is, for me, one of the grand confusions in learning is that Learning is really about change and behavior and changing behaviors. And we sometimes confuse it about the transmission of just knowledge. And I think it's one of those real dilemmas we've got around what it is. One of our instructional designers talks about the unification of um, learning, that essentially it, a lot of people, as, as we've all become more better qualified, experience the uni style learning experience where it's sort of lecture and knowledge base and then they transfer and practice that same practice back into the workplace and not even realizing that they possibly were doing their learning when they were doing the assignments i never i was not that impressed with university education system myself it uh, it seemed to be very much sit down shut up listen here's a lecture i kind of thought that was a really very unengaging way of educating people in a way that wasn't linked to performance. But I do think the idea of knowledge transfer being outside the classroom, using the classroom for the social, for the practice, is exactly the right way forward. But I think there's a challenge here that a lot of our customers, or whatever, learners, whatever the word is, is is to set their expectations. Because I think that a lot of them expect to come to the classroom cold, or with very little warm-up, very little pre-work, sit there, receive knowledge, and then that ends. So I think that there is a there is something around how we educate learners around how they learn and how they use this opportunity of being in a workshop. Does that make sense? Because I, I think if you just turned up and said, hey, we're just going to practice all day without any knowledge and people hadn't, done, hadn't had the knowledge transfer elements, assuming that's relevant to the subject, I think you would get a, a mismatch of expectation. Yeah, okay. So uh, there's, a, there's a few different things around this. This. Um, so I haven't quite got it right in our diagram yet when we've been trying to draw how this ecosystem works as a diagram. But I actually think of a learning ecosystem as making sure you've got the knowledge actually available to start with. And quite often one of the things that people do get used to is that the only spot to get knowledge is when you go to a training course because it's not documented and, and written really well. So that sort of, if it gets opened up, and actually put out there to start with, that's the first step. But you're also right. There's a whole thing about retraining people around what their expectations of a learning experience is. And becoming a self-directed learner isn't always easy. Um, quite often it's what people have, people have had, um, have had their curiosity sort of removed from them over a period of time. Um, and then you're sort of expecting them to sort of transform into this other thing and I think that's one of those really 
difficult transitions around 70-20-10 is to actually get people to that spot where they're actually um, and the learners, customers, stakeholders are in that spot where they're ready for it. And I think I think that for me, that's why it's actually interesting. We started by talking about 70-20-10 as an expansive thing, because I think that's a really nice way of working with it, is to actually sit there and go, we are going to run a formal course and we're going to add more to it. So you work with people with expectations for a formal course and then you expand it at that same time as of expanding it. You're trying to develop the managers as well as trying to develop the learners' self-directed learning skills at the same time. Yeah, the more the more we actually talk through this, the more I realise there is in each bit. Because I was just thinking back then, you know, we've we, we've in the first part of our discussion we've talked about creating this scaffold and we've talked about having the endpoint, but we haven't really gone down into saying what is a scaffold, what will it look like, how do you do that? And now we're now talking about using the, the 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 workshop space very much for practice and social and pushing the knowledge transfer or information dump to use your words uh, out of the classroom each of these subjects there's, there's there's like about 10 podcasts in each of them there's a lot in this yeah but to save the poor old to save the poor old listener having to listen to us talk for like 12 hours straight i think we're gonna to have to accept we're going fairly quickly over the surface here but you know i think there's a lot more we could talk about in each of these areas yeah, I run a monthly webinar around some of these topics and each time I get, I have this sort of moment when I start doing the prep work for them and I do a whole, oh my God, how am I going to get those three dot points into one hour? Um, yeah. and, <laughs> and the three dot points, I might be actually have already segmented it out to sit there and go, actually, I'm just talking about learning transfer this time. And then even then it feels like a, a really big complicated topic as well. So yeah, you, you're more than right on that one. Well, it's just you tug at these threads, don't you? you? You tug at them and you think, it just occurred to me then, I just thought, scaffold. And I thought, well, actually, we haven't really talked about what do we mean by scaffold. We've just sort of slapped ourselves on the back for a fancy metaphor and then kind of not really talked about what does it really look like? How do you do it? What would that look like in a particular program? So that's, I, 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 I think we do need to expand on those, but I don't think we'll have time in this podcast. So perhaps we can do a couple of future casts where we drill down into these and say, what would it look like? in each of these cases yeah. to give people a lot more information. And I do recommend people go and look at your um, sproutlabs.com website and see there are some really good blog posts and webinars on there. It's actually interesting as well. I'm still catching up on some of the things that we do in projects to actually then write them up as well. Do you mind if I just quickly talk about one scaffold we found really valuable, John? Yeah, go on, go on. And, and that's actually building guides for managers that sit there and say, if, if someone's doing this particular course, these are the types of workplace learning activities they could be doing, and then these are the types of coaching questions you could be asking them. Oh, that's brilliant, yeah. Yeah, we give those both to the managers, but we also give them to the, the learners and employees as well, so that when they don't have those experiences happening, if they're motivated, they can then prompt for them to happen as well. Yeah, and that's just that's been one of the most powerful scaffolds we've we've seen. I can see why as well, because the role of the manager is absolutely key in terms of ensuring that performance changes in the you know following on from a workshop. So I think that's a really good. I've written that down. I'm going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to do that later. Yeah, great so, example. I mean, Thank you for that. I think that sort of goes into the last yeah the last thing about learning from others and that manager role and line manager is just so important to everyone's learning experience that you as a learning and development person my metaphor is that in some ways you work through the manager to actually be able to affect the 70 and if you're not 
actually supporting the manager in how they're working to to do to to help their their people learn, you're probably going to find that the the, the actual experiential stuff isn't going to happen. I like I like that phrase. Work through the manager to get to the seventy. I think that's a really important phrase. I think if you don't work through the manager, then if you're working against the manager or the manager's not supporting you, or the manager's being cynical or just not part of it, then you're right. It's just going to go nowhere. I mean, it's also not easy being a line manager and especially a middle manager in, in an organisation. I think you get put everything, the responsibility for everything's on your shoulders. There's a lot of things happening for those people. Yeah, and they don't necessarily know how to do this. But that is what we are here for. So I yeah. think writing a guide for them is, is so obvious, but it's it's such a powerful thing that most of us don't do. And I've done it to some extent, but only I, I can see now following this conversation, there's a lot more I could do there. That's the great thing about this podcast. I learned so much. It's, it's interesting clarifying ideas as well. And then, yeah, I think the thing that people naturally think about with learning from other others is actually peer learning, learning as well and um, social learning experiences. And they can, once again, be designed into things that happen before or after learning events as well, just to start to build a culture of things and a culture of learning. One example, we've done a little bit of work in medical education with what's in Australia called general practitioners. And one of the things we found as we're doing sort of research around factors about why people took on trainee doctors and who got through exams quicker, that the practices that would do, say, like, like a monthly or fortnightly in-practice in in training session, so they would close down the whole practice for an hour and get everyone in, normally had a better sort of outcome for their trainee doctors because in actual fact they were actually saying learning was important and that getting together and talking about a case together was a really key thing to sort of framing things. So just some of that sort of stuff of encouraging people to talk to each other more can be incredibly powerful. Yeah, and I'm not just relying on that just happening by the water cooler or whatever, but actually having it in a, no, this is the hour that we have planned out to talk about these things, to learn from each other. So it's quite deliberate. I think if you yeah. leave it to chance, it might happen, but it's, you know, one in a thousand chance of it happening effectively. Yeah, I mean, especially in that spot where, it, I mean, doctors aren't they're working solo with patients in, in, in rooms. There's not a lot of water cooler possibilities. They're incredibly time-driven. So, yeah, actually building the time for them to do that is a really important part of building the, the ecosystem. I almost can't decide about whether or not that's the foundation or whether or not having the knowledge is the foundation. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, maybe we don't need to decide. Yeah. Maybe we can I mean, leave it ambiguous. Actually, that's also the other reason why I've decided I quite like the ecosystem um, metaphor is it can be used in lots of different ways. So, so far, we've, so far we've got to the point of having the learning from experience stuff with the scaffold, the end point. We've talked about having the space to practice new skills, and that should really be the main purpose of the workshop, and kind of the 10%, the formal stuff. So where do we go next? What was the third in your list? So the third thing was actually that learning from others, and then the, the fourth thing was the thing I actually... Um, okay, so we've already touched on that. Sorry. Yeah, the fourth thing was the thing I sort of touched on quickly, that, and we've seen it in a few organisations where really average learning happens because actually knowledge and practices and procedures are not documented to start with so the only way for people to be able to actually know how to be able to about how to do a job is actually to go go to a training course and hear someone talk about it for an hour 
because the internet because it's actually not on the internet or it's so buried on the internet that it's not actually anywhere there so i actually also think that they're sort of making sure that people have the right sort of job aids and information is really that sort of stepping stone for the rest of it so having the um so this is your fourth point is around having some kind of well job aids is the word you you use then but some kind of um specific description of what it is they're supposed to be doing yeah, a specific, a specific description or not all job job roles can have specific descriptions, but just having rather than all of that sort of tech knowledge always being in people's head, having a system in place for capturing it, recording it and trying to communicate it that's separate from the learning experiences. Can you give an example? I'm not quite clear on this one. Okay. Something we've um, done a couple of times is when training in organizations that have say really complicated manuals we've put in say and we've written a learner handbook that's a um, ebook um, that can be downloaded to an ipad and used as an epub so that people can sit there and before they interact with a session with an e-learning model module or go to a virtual classroom that they can brush through read the actual knowledge in a spot where it's been tailored for a um, new person and then be able to use that the actual learning experience for the more interactive things. So classic sort of flipped learning model, John, in some way. Right, okay. Some of the things you were talking like the podcast as well was a really nice example. It is for those of us that like audio and, you know, that are, but I know there are quite a few people that can't possibly sit through a conversation like this and without their mind drifting all over the place. But for those of us that quite enjoy audio, it's I think it's a really useful medium for, for learning. Yeah, um, and there was an interesting experience where I quite often make sure I put myself back into being a learner where a program used lots of video. And I actually said, I really like video, had been producing video, and it's one of the first points of call we go to around things. But it was interesting being overloaded with all this video. I went, actually, you know, it would be nice to just have some of this as transcriptions and text so I could just read it. Yeah, I think there's an obsession with video, isn't there? You get that a lot on newspaper websites where you have to watch a video. And I just think, oh, God, could you just write it down so I could read it? Sometimes it's quite inconvenient to watch a video as well, of course. You might be on a train or whatever. But sometimes I just think, let me read it. Yeah. um... Let me take it in my own pace, in my own way. I personally don't really like video. I find it quite difficult to engage with, but then I'm not very visual, so yeah. Whereas I'm it's not not true of everybody. I'm quite highly visual, and this was so. This was what was really interesting for me to all of a sudden go. Actually, I've had too much video. Um, I, I, need, I, need, right. I, need, I need something else. We've reached peak video. <laughs> it's so nice on, term, on this last point, um, on this last point here, you said about the sort of um, the job age and the example you used then was simplifying a really difficult handbook into something that was a lot more a lot more accessible. I still don't feel that I've fully understood your last point in terms of how it contributes to the ecosystem because you said previously about it being a way of capturing um, knowledge that was just kind of out there and and trying to what's the word I want codify. Yeah, and trying to codify that into something written. Is that is that what you're saying? Or to something not necessarily written, but something codified? <laughs> it, 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 Rather it, than being just out there. Um, yeah, actually, that's probably what it is. Rather than just being out there, it's codified, it's well-organized, people can access it, it's not trapped in people's heads or having to be part of training session. It's interesting I'm wrestling with, with explaining what I'm meaning. I think it's sort of almost 
trying to make that notion of the flipped classroom a habit rather than always to do with an event. So if you're making sure there's a nice amount of resources for people to be able to access, then all of a sudden that can then trigger different types of learning experiences. Um, another one we've seen is organizations that buy in content libraries. I'm going to use Linda as an example. So they then have sort of a massive, massive sort of video content and then they start to build learning experiences around that content, but by actually having that sort of base set of video that they can then do more complicated and more interesting things in their actual face-to-face classroom sessions. So it is very much around having a resource of content, not necessarily a codified instruction manual of what you're supposed to do every minute of the day in your job. Yes. So it's, it's, in, it's inspiring rather than constricting. Yeah, inspiring rather than constricting. And I think that's why... I sort of paused when we started to go down that sort of track of, oh, it's all about having job aids because it was a moment of me doing a little bit of actually job aids work with some types of job roles, but the more ambiguous and more complicated the work, the harder it, harder it is to write a job aid as such. Yeah, without contradicting what you were saying at the beginning about wanting innovation and wanting people to do things differently. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, I think, think, think there's a whole series of things around decision-making and, in, in, and in innovation, which you, you, you don't want to codify and you don't want to lock down too much because you need to have, people need to have flexibility. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but I mean, an example of codifying that is enabling and empowering and all the other good stuff was, was your example of the scaffold, the guide for managers. That's an example of codifying, here's how a manager should behave when trying to improve the performance of somebody on a learning program. Yeah, and that's the sort of thing of actually having, if you've got those sort of good, solid scaffold resources in place, you can then actually have other things grow up from that. Okay, so so we've got these four areas here, the guide for learning from experience thing, which is the scaffold, the endpoint. We've got the space for practicing new skills, learning from others. And the last thing here is some way of codifying or having a, con- a significant content resource, which is um, inspiring and, as we just said, <laughs> so... Pulling up, where, where did these four particular things come from? What made you decide that these were the four biggies that create, that helped create the le- ecosystem? It's a really good question, John. It's actually when I've looked at the characteristics of, once say, learning organisations, learning environments, which have worked well, and tried to sort of then re-pa- rethink what's happening inside of those to be able to communicate how they're working. So I think that's, that's for me, was where, where it came from, was trying to think through what were the aspects of that I was personally seeing and observing as being really good learning environments where learners were, were able to sort of become self-directed learners um, and managers were starting to become more, um, more attuned to helping people learn as well. So in your experience of having gone into organisations and challenged them on their ecosystem, these are the kind of four checkboxes that you've got or the structure that you've got, at least in your mind, when you're going in and thinking how to advise, how to consult, how to design and create a program. Yes, yeah, and that was where it sort of, it's come from seeing it working and then also in a couple of spots where we've gone in and there's been this massive holes missing. So a really good example of this was during a consultation process, we kept on hearing people talking about the fact they couldn't find anything on the internet. And all of a sudden, it sort of became really clear that the the learning experience that so was hundreds of e-learning modules was actually the surrogate intranet. All right. 
it's interesting, yeah. Yeah. But it's funny though, it's, I mean, a lot of the times the question, asking that question of what's getting in the way of your learning is a really interesting one. And it is sometimes very simple, movable obstacles, like I can't find anything. Yeah. You know, it can be as, as, as simple as that, which is a very easy trick to, to solve, much more so than there isn't anything. So you have to create yeah. a load of stuff. Yeah. And so sometimes there's, there's, there's a very easy, quick wins there. Mm. Um, and when you, when we, with some of those things, we heard them in multiple workshops, you then go, oh, actually, all right, this is really a red flag. Yep, that can be fixed, as you say, fairly, fairly quickly by actually just making things more findable if they already exist or repackaging them in a different way if they actually already exist as well. Well, listen, Robin, I think that's a really useful overview and way of thinking about how to tackle what's quite a woolly subject when we talk about learning organizations or ecosystems it all sounds very ambitious and very uh, vague and very worthy but it just it's hard to actually set that down into concrete and say actually here's the activities that i'm going to do even reading some of the books like peter sengi is still not that clear what it is i'm supposed to do as an lnd specialist so that's a really useful way of thinking about that i think so thank you very much for that Oh, cool. Thank you, John. I'm pleased to hear that you're finding it valuable. Yeah, for me, it's been a really, really help to clarify actually how we're working really well. Um, and it's been, yeah, made it a whole lot smoother when we're starting to work with people around making these sorts of changes. I do think there's there's a couple of a couple more conversations in this, as I said, in particular around how you build the scaffolding and then maybe something around flipped classrooms and how to make those work. So I hope that we can continue this conversation in the future. Cool. Yeah, that could be really interesting, John. Thank you. Great. Well, thanks, Robin. Thanks for your time. Great. Thank you. And have a, have a good evening. Great. Thank you.